everybody. This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned seconds ago, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty well, I guess. Lisa's been traveling for business a lot lately, so naturally, I've been binge-watching the TV series Highlander from the early 90s. Wow, that certainly is a television program. It is not without competition, but I think it may be the most 90s television show ever. From the production style, to the lighting, to the turtlenecks, to the billowy shirts, to the ponytails to the vests, to the inherent belief that toxic masculinity that occasionally quotes Eastern philosophy and has a ponytail ain't hardly toxic masculinity at all. Wow. In terms of sheer 90s-ness, this show is the audiovisual equivalent of a bag of sun-dried tomatoes. It's also pretty fun, and watching it has made me really, really want to see a sequel to a movie. Not Highlander. They made a bunch of sequels to that, and I haven't seen them, and probably am not going to. No, watching Highlander has made me want them to make a sequel to Bohemian Rhapsody, which I also have not seen. But, unless I am very much mistaken, that film does not cover the backstory of whichever member of Queen it is that is super into King Blood. See, eagle-eared listeners will note that the opening song to the Highlander TV show and the Highlander movie is by Queen. It is a fun song. And the opening lyrics are, Here we are, born to be kings, we're the princes of the universe. Then there's a bridge, and then it goes, I am immortal, I have within me blood of kings. And as soon as he says, I have within me blood of kings, somebody in the background cannot contain himself and just goes, Yeah! Not excited about being immortal. Not excited about being here. Not excited about being born to be kings. But having within him blood of kings? Yeah! That dude loves king blood. And I want to know what his story is. What would his reaction to other royal bodily fluids be? I am immortal. I found a baggie of princess spit. Eh. Maybe he's just a super aristocratic vampire. We really have no way of knowing. And that's why Hollywood needs to get on it and make that movie. So thanks in advance, Hollywood. Your friend, Hub. And without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. And I think right now all of our synopsis rhyme submissions are Teen Titans related. So how would the guy from Queen feel about some Pharaoh piss? Until Hollywood informs us, here's a synopsis. Synopsis. Defenders, number 51. September, 1977. Around with the Ringer. Written by David Anthony Kraft. Drotted by Keith Giffen. Inked by Klaus Janssen. Lettered by Gaspar Saladino and Bruce Patterson. Colored by Phil Rash. And edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup. Hellcat. Valkyrie. Nighthawk, the Hulk, and Moon Knight. Previously in the Defenders. 
After Doctor Strange, Luke Cage, and the Red Guardian tended their resignation, the remaining members of our titular non-team moved their headquarters to the abandoned Long Island Riding Academy that Nighthawk had bought on a whim to hit on Valkyrie. Before the heroes had the opportunity to finish unpacking the robes they had no doubt pilfered from Strange's sanctum sanctimonious, they ran afoul of a sartorially scarlet sad sack supervillain named Scorpio. Scorpio, aka Jake Fury, was the brother of Nick Fury, the director of the international espionage agency S.H.I.E.L.D. Jake had stumbled across a mystical MacGuffin known as the Zodiac Key, which gave him the ability to teleport, turn himself into water, and do various other cosmic nonsense as well. Despite his unorthodox powers, Scorpio was unsatisfied with his life and felt like an outcast. With the aid of a reprogrammed robotic duplicate of his brother Nick, the crimson-clad Crumbum concocted a clever scheme. Never having been able to make friends using Dale Carnegie's methods, Jake decided to try to make some friends using Victor Frankenstein's methods. Jake and his robot butler brother began building a machine capable of creating 11 new life forms inspired by the other astrological signs of the Zodiac, who would answer to Scorpio and do his nefarious bidding. But before the contraption could be completed, the misanthropic miscreant and his mechanical manservant ran out of money. To replenish his criminal coffers, Scorpio kidnapped Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, and Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris whose body was the host for the sorceress-created Persona Valkyrie, and held them for ransom. While their astrological antagonist plied his unwilling guests with cheap beer and unnecessary exposition, Valkyrie and Hellcat enlisted the aid of Moon Knight, a wealthy former criminal turned vigilante whose strength increased at night. Sounds familiar. Hulk was intent on taking a hiatus from smashing and was initially reluctant to assist his avenging allies. So Val took a page out of the Stephen Strange playbook and through a combination of insults and kicks baited the belligerent behemoth into following his non-teammates to the secret lair which Moon Knight had scouted out earlier. As the defenders approached his base, a panicked Scorpio activated his not-quite-fully-functional friend factory with less than optimal results. Of the intended 11 astrological avatars, only 8 survived. The Hulk Kool-Aid manned his way through the fortress, and our protagonist promptly pummeled the newly created criminal cadre. Despondent over his defeat and unwilling to face a future filled with further failures, Jake Fury ordered his simulacrum sibling-slash-servant to surrender his sidearm. Over the protests of his fraternal facsimile, Scorpio used the weapon to take his own life. Gadzooks! Will this issue of The Defenders end on a similarly dramatic note? Will the untimely demise of his evil brother affect Nick Fury's ability to run S.H.I.E.L.D.? And with the Scorpio saga concluded, what new cosmic menaces will our heroes face next? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so it ends with a litterbug getting hit in the tummy with a stick, so I'm gonna say that's a no. Yes. In fact, his decision-making capacity is so compromised that he tries to hire Jack Norris. And bureaucracy and a guy who throws hoops. In the aftermath of the battle with Scorpio and his new Zodiac, the real Nick Fury is contacted. The Cyclopean spy stares sadly at his supervillainous sibling, Supine Soulless Soma. He attempts to question his robotic doppelganger about the details of his brother's death, but the grieving automaton adopts a world-weary and embittered expression that mirrors Fury's own and refuses to cooperate. Even without the confirmation of the morose mechanical man, Nick has a pretty fair grasp of how events must have unfolded. As he solemnly surveys the scene of his brother's suicide, Fury's private thoughts and sense of personal space are disrupted by the arrival of everyone's least favorite matrimonially-minded meathead, Jack Norris. Great. Jack immediately starts berating Scorpio's bereaved brother and is like, 
I bet you're not even sad. You don't have any feelings, do you? Why aren't you displaying your emotions and inner life in a manner that I approve of, you stupid jerk? Also, since I'm here policing your grief process anyway, remember that time you had your employees at S.H.I.E.L.D. question me about a matter of national security? Well, they were mean to me, and so were you, and I hate you, and where's my wife? Nick slowly puffs on his cigar and calmly replies, Okay, couple of things about that. One, I am very sad. B, when my agents were questioning you because they thought you had information and a plan to assassinate Jimmy Carter, I walked in and saw that they were being hard on you, and I yelled at them and made them stop it. And three, you're a tactless, self-absorbed jerk who is wrong about everything. You ever consider working for the government? As Jack contemplates this unexpected job offer, Moon Knight and Kyle bond over how great it is to be rich and get strong at night. Kyle asks his new nocturnal buddy, Hey, didn't you get caught in some kind of a water-based death trap when you were scouting out Scorpio's base yesterday? How'd you get out of that anyway? Moon Knight replies, Oh, that? I shotgunned a beer and used the empty can as scuba equipment. Fuck yeah, he did! Having just blown everyone's mind with his life-saving party skills, Moon Knight drops the metaphoric mic, grabs a can of beer for the road, and flies away in his mooncopter. What a cool guy. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he invented moonwalking and named it after himself. Meanwhile, just outside of Moscow, having quit the Defenders and returned to her mother country under threat of blackmail, the Red Guardian, a.k.a. Dr. Tanya Belinsky, has just been picked up at the airport by a man she assumes is working for the KGB. He quickly disabuses her of this notion. The Slavic spy reveals that he works for a different agency, one the rest of the Soviet government knows nothing about. He has been tasked with retrieving Dr. Belinsky and recruiting her to participate in a project known only as... Codename Sergi. <laughs> At the mention of the project's name, Tanya is visibly shaken. Makes sense. I mean, I don't know what that code name means, but those dun-dun-duns make it sound pretty serious. A few weeks later, back in New York, Valkyrie has decided that she would like to learn more about this strange world of Midgard, asterisk, Earth, that she has been living in ever since the Enchantress stuffed her into Barbara Norris's body back in issue number four. At Kyle's urging, she decided to put on some civilian clothes and enroll herself in Empire State University. The affluent avian aficionado assures his anxious Asgardian amiga that the registration process will be a smooth one, especially as he has a friend in the bursar's office who he is sure will help guide her through the bureaucratic side of signing up for classes. Wow, that is surprisingly thoughtful of Kyle. Or it would be if he had done even the tiniest bit of research. Because when Val goes into the Office of Admissions and asks to see the individual Nighthawk had assured her would act as her enrollment doula, she is informed that he has been retired for three years and dead for a fair percentage of that time. Damn it, Kyle! Instead of the simple process that her billionaire duel buddy had promised her, Val is forced to spend torturous hours wandering labyrinthian academic hallways, finding offices that seem to disappear before her very eyes like administrative brigadoons. She fills out endless reams of paperwork only to be told upon their completion that the class she sought to attend is full and she must begin her seemingly Sisyphean task anew. 
Throughout the soul-crushing ordeal, the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger perseveres, until finally she stands before the registrar and proudly presents her completed paperwork, only to have it torn up in front of her and be told that she has made a mistake and must get all new forms filled out and start over again. So Val smashes the lady's desk, curses Kyle Richmond's name, and storms out of the office. Given the amount of superheroes who have attended Empire State University, I can't believe that's the first desk they've gone through. It's kind of funny that Kyle Richmond had such a skewed recollection of what the registration process was like. It's almost as though it was somehow easier for a guy whose dad had donated several buildings to the campus. Weird. Speaking of Kyle... A few blocks away, the pugilism-prone plutocrat finds that the Richmond Industries building has been sealed off and is surrounded by police officers. The cops inform him that the business is being robbed. Despite the fact that it is daytime, so he does not currently possess the staggering strength of two strong men, Kyle changes into his Nighthawk duds and heads inside to investigate. It turns out that the burglar in question is a self-described second-tier supervillain named The Ringer. He's a disgruntled NASA scientist who has become disillusioned with capitalism. So, he invented a bunch of high-tech hoops which he figured he could use to rob some rich people. Neat! Not knowing that Richmond and Nighthawk are one and the same, the circle-slinging scoundrel points out that Kyle Richmond has done nothing to earn his inheritance, and there is no reason why Nighthawk should risk his life to protect an entitled twit like Kyle. Then he throws some science rings at the bird-beaked billionaire and beats him up. I know he's the antagonist and all, but hooray! I like this guy. The ringer continues to spout quasi-Marxist rhetoric as he thrashes Nighthawk with his silly-looking hoops. He also posits that Nighthawk must be getting some sort of unsavory gratification from engaging in violence, an accusation to which Kyle readily admits. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end, and eventually the ringer runs out of rings and is forced to stop beating the shit out of Kyle. Aww. As Kyle punches the now defenseless do-batter in the face, he offers this half-hearted rebuttal to the ringer's diatribe. Oh, oh yeah? Well, everything you said is totally true, and this Kyle Richmond guy may be a useless jerk who just happens to reap the benefits of a flawed and unjust system, but, um, y you're just jealous. So there. Good one, Kyle. Back at the Defender's new headquarters on Long Island, Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, is attempting to make some coffee. It's not going so great. Suddenly, a familiar face flings wide the door and bellows his unfortunate catchphrase. Where's my wife? Oh good, it's Jack Norris. Patsy drags the canubily confused creep outside and patiently tells him to knock it off. He's got to get over Val and move on if he ever wants his life to improve. Jack replies, Hmm, that makes sense, but what if instead of that, I don't? Yeah, I think that keeping on doing the same belligerent entitled nonsense I've been doing and that hasn't been working out is probably the way to go. Thanks, though. Damn it, Jack. Downtown, the Hulk steals some hot dogs and eats them. Hooray! In a nearby coffee shop, Valkyrie is seeking solace from her scholastic sojourn and is trying to calm down after the stressful events of the day. She is lost in thought and clearly wants to be left alone. 
So naturally, a gregarious bearded college student comes over and starts ineptly hitting on her. Welcome to Midgard, asterisk Earth, Val. The boisterous bearded boy introduces himself as Dollar Bill and invites Val to attend a double feature with him. Perhaps mistaking his amorous intentions for a more innocuous form of friendliness, Val agrees. Much to Dollar Bill's dismay, a long-faced young acquaintance of his named Ledge approaches the table and invites himself along as well. The unlikely trio of students heads towards the movie theater. A few yards behind them, a portly young man takes out a popsicle and thoughtlessly discards a wrapper on the sidewalk. As he walks past a darkened alley, someone wielding a heavy stick reaches out and whacks him right in the tummy. Man, somebody must really hate popsicles. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how are you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm doing okay. I got a sunburn the other day. I can believe that. I can believe it because I remember... We were trying to make the water drip noises by flicking our <laughs> cheek and going... That's right. Uh, you tried to do that, and yours went... Ow! Yeah. So, yeah, I do remember that you had a sunburn, and I do believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's peeling on my arms. It's gross. I'm sorry. It's okay. Otherwise, very well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm having less specifically lizard allegoric body things going on than you. You know, shedding your skin and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, I mean... Nobody's pulled my tail and it's regrown, which I appreciate it. Wait, you have a tail? No, somebody oh. pulled it and it didn't regrow. Oh. Because I'm not a lizard. Oh. I'm a human man from Earth, Of Corey. course, are we all? Our are... tails do not regrow. That's one thing I'll say about us humans who are from Earth. Right. Everybody knows that, though. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's a well-known Earth fact. Mm-hmm. Or fact, as I call them, being from Earth. Right. You want to talk about a comic book? Oh, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Not bad. Let's uh let's get into the details of it, shall we? Okay. The Ringer. What'd you think of this startling new supervillain? Oh man, what a ridiculous character. I enjoyed him. I enjoyed him too. I didn't find him that ridiculous. I was I was mostly on his side. Chiefly what I found ridiculous was the choice of his to put a vertical shaped part of a ring bisecting his face yeah he had that thing going on where it was like his head was the nucleus of an atom maybe Mm. where he's got one ring going around it yeah at a 90 degree angle to another ring that is going around it which comes down right in front of his nose and it makes it look like he's got one of those like butterfly proboscises or something it is very silly looking it is a silly looking outfit but for a self-described small timer remarkably effective for the most part Although he does lose to Nighthawk. But come on, that guy's got the strength of two strong men. I thought just at night. Oh, you're right. It is daytime. It is daytime. Which seems also, like, I'm led to believe poor planning for robberies. Like, usually nighttime's a better time to be robbing things. Uh, You'd think so, but in the Marvel Universe, you get your, uh, if you do it at nighttime, then you have to contend with a uh, double strong strong Mm -hmm. Nighthawk and Moon Knight. Yeah. So... That's two things you don't want to deal with. Exactly. Probably. But overall, I, I feel like he, he put up a good fight. His ring thing seemed super cool. He kicked the shit out of Nighthawk for a while. I did like him really razzing Richmond, too, as being, you know, if Kyle's daddy hadn't given it to him, 
Kyle would not be nothing, and you just make all your money by screwing people over anyway. He raises a lot of really good points that I started to say that force Nighthawk to think things over, and they do for a second, but then he ends up resolving his difficulties with Ringer's arguments. Because Ringer has some pretty decent points that he brings up. He's like, Kyle Richmond didn't do anything to earn this money. I don't know why you're fighting so hard on his behalf. What do you care if one person who didn't earn this money has it over another person who didn't earn this money? And I think that's a pretty good argument. He also brings up that Nighthawk is just working out his fucking sadist and masochistic fantasies by getting his kicks for adventure, by dressing up as a costumed hero. It's just which, an excuse to beat people up and bully people. Yeah. And Nighthawk kind of says, I think he says, yeah, okay, I do. Yep, and then punches him in the face. Yeah, which especially if Ringer doesn't know Nighthawk's background, like not being Kyle Richmond, but the fact that he used to be a dude who just did burglary for kicks, he is right on the money with this shit. And... For all of his arguments, Nighthawk says like, oh man, they're really shaking me. These arguments are getting to me. And then eventually he's just like, ah, you're just jealous of me. Yeah, but before that, what's interesting is he's thinking, these are such pointed barbs at me that he must know that Nighthawk is Kyle Richmond. Yeah, but he doesn't. Nope. Zing. Yeah. Remarkably incisive character. It made me actually wonder, like, on the strength of his arguments... And the fact that his name is the Ringer. Like, Ringer is a term that's used when... You get a horseshoe right on the thing. Well, okay, yes, but that is true. I don't think he was talking about that. Oh, okay, sorry. I was thinking it was maybe... Because it's a, it's a term for when someone is brought in as a substitute that's kind of a cheat. Mm-hmm. Like, it started on horse racing when you would find one horse that looked like another horse and substitute him at the last minute so that your horse would win the race Mm. and beat the handicapping odds. It made me wonder if the ringer was supposed to be a stand-in for somebody. Like, just judging from his name and, like, his quasi-Marxist arguments and stuff, Mm. if he was maybe a stand-in for Kraft as a writer or for somebody that he knew. I don't have any definitive answers about that, but it made me think that, and if it isn't that, then it seems like kind of a missed opportunity to have a character named The Ringer. Or if there were plans for, like, I think it would be kind of a clever thing to do to have The Ringer be, like, two guys who are pretending to be one guy, you know? Indeed. But I don't think that was the case, and Ringer only has a few appearances, and then in the mid-80s, he uh, gets killed. That's a shame. It is. It was part of this storyline they did where... I think Marvel was just kind of tidying up their universe, and they introduced a villain named the Scourge who just went around and murdered all of the lower-tier supervillains who I think were kind of cluttering things up. Which I didn't care for. I like these lower-tier villains. You can just, like, not write about them. Yeah, you can just ignore them. That's fine. Mm -hmm. They're off just doing little crimes that we don't need to know about. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, just like maybe they move to one of the cities that never gets talked about in the Marvel Universe. Like, maybe they're just in Dayton, doing, like, little Dayton crimes. Yeah. You know? Ohio crimes. Yeah. Yeah, there was more philosophical discussion in this battle scene than I'm accustomed to, and I kind of enjoyed it. It was fun. I really enjoyed it, and I kind of wish it had shaken Nighthawk a little bit more than it does, although after the battle he does say that he's basically got some thinking to do. Yeah, perhaps the most self-reflective we've seen him since he got his brain put back in his head yeah i'm hoping it'll stick but i have my doubts Mm. especially i thought it was interesting that he was drawing parallels between himself and the scorpio character who 
had that tragic end and basically all this stuff that amounted to nothing mm-hmm. and he's having the same sort of little kind of midlife crisis moment there was a little bit of that going around because norris also found parallels to his life and scorpios and it's interesting to see this tragic event that they were part of cause these ripples for these characters and think about their own lives and draw parallels to a supervillain that they encountered which i think is a nice touch and is kind of rare in these comics and yet Norris makes his entrance fucking oh, once again God. by screaming, Where's, Where's my, my wife? wife? Jesus, dude. He's such I'm a so bullshit character. I'm so sick of this, and I do have, like, in all capital letters in my notes, Jesus fucking Christ, Jack, you've been over this. Like, yesterday. In the Scorpio saga, with the compressed timeline of these comics, they made it a point that all of these events have taken place within, like, a one or two day span. So in the course of two days, he has had like three serious discussions with Val about the fact that she wants him to go away and wants nothing to do with him and she is not his wife. And he still comes back. And he still comes back and is like, I know this is hard, but I just need to have this conversation once and for all. Oh, you've had this conversation once and for all, like seven times. He does not listen. So that's why initially I was very optimistic when Hellcat... It's like, she's like, oh, I'm going to be super nice to him and then take him outside and tell him to just really fuck off once and Uh for all. And she doesn't. She says the solution to all of this, Jack, is you just got to change your frame of mind. Be positive. More positive thinking. More positive thinking. But she also does tell him he needs to get over Val. Yeah, I think it was wrapped in a package too sweet to be received Mm. by him. I think he's going to take that as meaning, well, that other getting over part is just a little speed bump. I'm I'm feeling positive now, so I'm going to go back and make my wife realize how awesome I am. I don't think you can put that on the Hellcat. I think that is all Jack Norris. I don't think it's that the package is too sweet. I think if that package had been fucking dipped in pickle juice, he still wouldn't be signing for it. Well, I mean, who would sign for a pickle juice package? Especially if it was initially sweet. Yeah. Yeah, that okay. That's, that'd good. be sticky. And You're right. kind of gross. Yeah. Oh, what I'm getting at is there's... <laughs> <laughs> the metaphor is gone. The, there's a line in, I think it's a Starman comic book from the 90s, where there's a character who sold all this technology for to the Joker. And he's like, I didn't know he was going to use it to kill people. And the hero's response to that is, it's the Joker. If you sell him lime jello, he's going to use it to kill people. Mm. So it's Jack Norris. If you give him any advice, he's going to take it as, I should look for my wife. Where's my wife? Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Good on Hellcat for trying. Good on Hellcat for trying. I don't like that she was so nice to him, though. He doesn't deserve that. No. But I I think she's just a nice lady. And it kind of makes sense that she would be a little bit more sympathetic to him. Because from her perspective, this conversation with Val has happened once or twice. Mm, Hasn't been going on. She's only been there for two days. So she's only been there for, I guess, three conversations where Val told him to fuck off and leave her alone forever. Please, please, please. Which, yeah, that's enough. But she hasn't been there for all fucking 18 of those conversations. Yeah, fair. And Jack's wearing a nice turtleneck at the time. Also... Kyle said it's a pretty low bar. She's probably at least... At least Norris doesn't creepily watch me while I sleep. That I know of. That I know of. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing in Norris's defense on that is he also doesn't have a coffee pot that keeps exploding. Man, 
I wrote down that she needs to follow the Hulk's rules. <laughs> She's making coffee for what? One or two people. Use a exactly. fucking French press. Yeah. Yeah. That whatever the thing it is keeps blowing <laughs> up. And that's eventually somebody's going to get hurt. I'm wondering if maybe because she does have some kind of like innate psychic abilities that we talked about when she was like training on the moon with the bald lady named Moon Dragon. So I wonder if maybe to some extent, like she's just getting in her own head about this coffee making thing and she just gets super excited and she uses her telekinetic powers to explode the coffee maker. Self-fulfilling prophecy of the worst kind. Indeed. Or a pretty bad, annoying kind. An annoying kind. Yeah, probably not the worst There's kind. There's probably worse. I mean, I would say, ones. like, famously, the whole Oedipal thing is probably a worse <laughs> self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. I don't know, man. You can get bad burns. You're right, man. And have to change your clothing. And you don't get that cup of coffee in the morning. So many frustrations. Mm. But still. I think I'd still probably take that. <laughs> One of the other things we get in this issue is a little follow-up, a very little follow-up, on what the Red Guardian is up to. Mm. And what she is up to is the KGB operative who had kidnapped her from the airport before, we learn, is not a KGB operative. He is part of a secreter group than the KGB and is taking her to something named Codename Sergi. Mm-hmm. Sergi? Sergi. Sergi? Sergi. Sergey Fergie. That's the Black Eyed Peas lady. Yeah. No, uh, codename Fergie is a totally different thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, what uh, what do you think codename Sergey is? Well, I have to guess that it's foreshadowing for the character. Maybe that's one of the characters or group. I don't know if it's a character or group that will be introduced in the next issue called Lunatic, spelled with a I-K at the end, mm. because that sounds very 1980s, this is how Russians spell things. Oh, maybe. Uh, that hadn't actually occurred to me. Well, I guess we will see. It is weird that it's codenamed Sergei. That is not a very ominous sounding or descriptive codename. Maybe it's an acronym. Maybe. What it definitely is, is just like a fairly common Russian first name. And she reacts to it very strongly. So it's basically the equivalent of like, oh, you know what I'm here for. This is all pertaining to codename Steve. No. Yeah. Is there a first name that you would react that way to? Codename mm. Chad. <laughs> I would be worried about the Chad one because I knew this guy named Chad who paid somebody like 200 bucks to hit him in the arm or the leg with a baseball bat and then he went into a McDonald's because he knew when they mopped their floors and pretended to fall down and sued them and got a bunch of money for it. Wow, that's pretty clever. Also... It's not that clever. Also, yeah, like, it seems... A lot of stick-to-itiveness, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of follow-through on that plan. Yep. Was this one of the people you lived with? Yes, he was uh, one of the roommates in the, the big... He was house. one of the ones that you described as having been hit in the head with a baseball bat, quote, too many times? No, that unquote. was a different That was a different that guy. That was a different guy. Yeah. I always loved that description because it implies that there is an appropriate amount of times to be hit in the head with the baseball bat that is higher There's... than the number zero. So, okay, I can understand from your perspective, codename Chad. I think I would probably react pretty strongly if somebody was like, codename Andy. Oh, I haven't known any really bad Andes. In fact, I've known some Andes that I like, but there's something about the ominousness of the code name and then having a diminutive after that. Like if it was like, 
Operation Codename Skippy. I just thought that was kind of a weird touch. Also, uh, the KGB is kind of talked uh, shit about in this from a secret organization within Russia, much in the same way that the CIA is talked shit about from a different espionage agency operating in the United States. Shield. Yeah. N yeah, Nick Fury has some disparaging things to say about the CIA and their methods, which uh, I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. I made note of that as well. Yeah. What the fuck is going on with Nick Fury in this issue? He's having a weird conversation with his life model decoy likeness. That's got to be kind of surreal for him. Although, I get the impression that probably crops up at S.H.I.E.L.D. a fair amount. It is a S.H.I.E.L.D. prototype robot that he has. But the context is pretty the, fucked up, right? He's like, yeah. He's like, did my robot did my brother kill maybe my... killed my brother, or maybe it was an assisted suicide for my brother, and both me and my robot seemed pretty bummed out about this. Mm-hmm. And now I have to talk to Jack Norris, who is being an asshole. He was being such a dick about that. He was being such a piece of shit. I was so angry at Jack Norris throughout this issue. But what made me, I think, even angrier is that the gist of the conversation is this. Hey, Nick Fury, do you even care that your brother's dead and it happened just a second ago? You probably don't because you're a jerk because you kidnapped and tortured me. And he's like, okay, I didn't kidnap you and torture you. Some other people were questioning you, and I saw that they were taken to task for that and made them stop doing that. And I'm very upset that my brother just died. It was seven years that I didn't know whether he was alive or not. And now I do know that he's dead, for sure. You leapt to completely wrong conclusions at every step of the way on this, and were super incompetent as a spy the first time that I encountered you. So what I'm saying is... Do you want a job? Yeah, that was so incongruous to me. He must be shook about his brother's death, because why else would you offer Jack Norris a job? Oh. To do anything. Yeah. Especially spycraft. <laughs> He's objectively terrible at it. So bad. He has just called him out on all of the wrong assumptions that he has leapt to. And then it's like, but you're a good guy. You want a job? What the fuck is the criteria for hiring somebody at S.H.I.E.L.D.? Maybe it's just for lab tests? Oh, they probably have, like, a Patsy program. Oh. It's like, Norris will be perfect. That would make sense. Could be useful. Yeah. Maybe they're going to use him as, like, a negative example for other spies. Mm. Like, you send him into the field, you videotape him, and then you show, like, a training video to the other S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and be like, okay, you see everything this guy did? Don't do those things. And your training is complete. Yeah, man, speaking of negative examples, a guy I know showed me a videotape of his former supervisor who had been uh, recently demoted trying to put gasoline into a large generator and screwing up, spraying himself and everything else with, like, the hoses, like, flopping around. Oh, like when the little rascals try to hang on to a fire hose? Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, this guy used to be my boss. Wow. And you can see he's, like, recording it on his phone and kind of giggling. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's doing that. Like, wow. Then he called him a numbnuts. Real Jack Norris. That is a harsh insult. Yeah, that's true. I don't know the guy. He's just bad at putting gas in things. Yeah, we, we don't know where he stands, R.E., his non-wife's location. <laughs> Could be fine in that yeah. regard. <laughs> yeah, sorry, guy. I don't know to disparage you. So Yeah, not fair. The other main thrust of the issue seems to be Val's attempt to enroll in college. 
I loved this subplot. I did too, because I had similar sort of like going around Portland State University and just being like, nope, wrong line. Fuck, I've been in this line for 30 minutes. <laughs> yep. Down to the, well, I guess I have my social security number memorized now. That was exactly when I memorized my social security number for the first time. Yep. Which is seven. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you, Corey. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to show off that I still have it memorized. That's a, it's very good. Thank you. But yeah, I thought it was a really good illustration of that. But also, it is one of my favorite things that can happen in a superhero comic, which is superheroes dealing with mundane aspects of everyday life and being somewhat ill-equipped to do so. It's one of my favorite tropes that can happen. It's what I loved about, like, the 80s Justice League International series. And it's one of the things that I love about the Defenders. Their job is thwarting villains, but a lot of the story is them dealing with aspects of their everyday life. And Val specifically being written as a kind of fish out of water who is unprepared to deal with the world around her but is super competent in super heroics, I think is a fun dichotomy to play with. I also especially like the fact that since it was Kyle who pushed her towards college, everything that's bad she basically associates with him. And there's a scene in which she's shake, <laughs> literally shaking her fist, going, ah, oh, Kyle! <laughs> yeah, when the lady tells her that she's been waiting in the wrong line and that she has to start over the application process mm -hmm. and rips up her application, she's like, I can't hit you, you horrible old hag, because you're a woman. But Kyle isn't. <laughs> Oh, she smashes the desk in half. Yeah, yeah. Which also, I was like, oh, damn, that must have felt nice. I bet that felt really, really good. But, I mean, she has a point in terms of not just her associating Kyle with this whole ordeal because he pushed her in that direction, but also he told her, it's like, hey, don't worry, I'll hook you up with this dude. He owes me a favor. He'll guide you through this whole process. And it was a dude that had retired three years ago, and he never checked and I get maybe not checking to see if he's still there, but if you expect somebody to do someone else a favor on your behalf, maybe check in with them about it. Maybe you see if he's still alive. Yeah. Because he's fucking dead. Yeah. Maybe check to see if the guy's still alive. Just a thought. Give but him a call. follow through on details is something that Kyle Richmond is even worse at than Valkyrie is. They both operate kind of like a fish out of water because Valkyrie had been sorcerously summoned into existence and has only an Asgardian background. And Kyle was born rich. Yeah. There is a weird piece of dialogue that he has when he is fighting the ringer where he makes a joke that doesn't really make any sense. He grabs his cape and flings it around the ringer's feet and says, you've heard the expression tripping the light fantastic. Well, you seemed in such a hurry to start that I thought I'd help you out. Ringer had not started dancing, which is what tripping the light fantastic means. And then Nighthawk, I guess, did not get the reaction he wanted because he follows it up by saying, that's a joke, son. That's a joke. I could not read that in anything other than a foghorn leghorn voice. That's a joke, son. That's a joke, son. A joke, see? Yeah, I did not understand that. And I meant to, but forgot to look up the meaning of that. So it means to dance. That was my always what I thought it meant. I just immediately thought of um, hallucinogenic drugs in the 70s. Well, I mean, that would make more sense because mm -hmm. of tripping. Yeah. And fantastic lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Laser. 
Laser who? That would be awesome! You Laser know? who at the planetarium? <laughs> right. Let's go! Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of Nighthawk really leaning into the bird motif that he's got going on with being Nighthawk, having a bird on his chest, and that he has just started peppering his dialogue with quotes from famous cartoon birds. Mostly Foghorn Leghorn. Mostly Foghorn Leghorn, but I can see him saying, you're despicable to somebody else. (laughs) Or just like doing a shitty Donald Duck impression for no reason. I'm a dead duck. Who said that? Howard the Duck said that. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. In the movie. Ah. That piece, that cinematic gem you've subjected (laughs) me to, not once, but twice. (laughs) For those of you who would like to hear more about Corey's thoughts on the film Howard the Duck, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. It's a movie. Don't give him any more, Corey. Okay, okay. Did Corey love this movie? Is it his favorite movie? <laughs> Ever? Is he wearing a t-shirt right now that says, I love Howard the Duck the movie? No way of knowing until you donate money to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would like it if he started just like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Man, cartoon birds are assholes. Cartoon birds? All birds, but especially cartoon birds. Mm. But especially all birds. The difference between Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker? Bugs Bunny is an asshole out of self-defense. A hunter sticks a gun in his face. Sure. Woody Woodpecker, that walrus is just trying to have a fucking picnic. I hate Woody Woodpecker. He's an annoying jerk. I bet Kyle quotes him all the time. I bet he has a locket around his neck that has a picture of Woody Woodpecker in it. I bet he has Warner Brothers everything in his bedroom. (laughs) Like the sheets, yeah, the pillowcases. He's got like Daffy Duck, custom fo- made foghorn leghorn, silk silk screened Warner Brothers bird apparel. You remember in the '90s how there was all of the like Warner Brother cartoon characters wearing like baggy clothes and hip hop gear? Mm-hmm. I bet he had a custom made T-shirt that were like Daffy Duck, Donald Duck, Woody Woodpecker, and Foghorn Leghorn uh, hanging out wearing bell bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> Some big lapels. <laughs> big lapels. Chains. <laughs> Leisure suits. <laughs> saying like different 70s catchphrases. I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, keep on trucking. <laughs> hang, hang loose, you hear? That's Nighthawk for you. Oh, what an asshole. So, what did you think of Val's new acquaintances, Dollar Bill and Ledge? Well, when we get into the minutiae and talk about clothes... Oh yeah, they will come up in that regard, for sure. I thought that, how to put it, the dialogue which was written for them, especially Dollar Bill, being like kind of a gregarious, you know, happy-go-lucky, supposed to be really funny sort of guy, Yeah, came off to me sounding like, you know, just putting myself in Val's place. Like, it would have been super annoying to be approached in that manner. Like, he basically comes up and says, hey, you're hot. Can I sit down? And sits down. Not only that, but like, hey, you're you're hot. Also, you're way older than everybody else here. But that's cool. I like old women. Like, in a sexual way. Yeah. Like I, I feel like the phrase turns me on is now more sexualized than it was back then. But yeah, it still definitely comes across that way. And I think it's supposed to be like playful banter. But it comes across, I think, probably in a modern context as creepier than it maybe would have back then. Or maybe it was just as creepy back then. That's what I was trying to sort out. So the way it's written, 
And and a lot of times this actually comes up when stuff is played for laughs in these books. Mm -hmm. I find myself wondering, like, oh, man, the 70s was just, you know, an inherently creepier time as, you know, social stuff has gotten better. Or... Or we, as, you know, white dudes don't deal with dudes talking to us that way all the time. And maybe that just happens all the time still. Mm -hmm. I'm sad to say I think it is likely the latter. Yeah. But... That was my first impression was like, oh, this is supposed to be funny and they're supposed to be kind of like charming, like yeah. goofy guys. But it, I was just like, that's eh, kind of creepy. It definitely comes across as creepy. I want to like these characters because I want them to be charming, goofy guys. And there are things about them that are charming and goofy. But yeah, I can't really quite get past that. Anyway, the three of them decide to attend a... Double feature. Double feature. And what an odd double feature. I had a note of that. It is the weirdest thing that I could imagine putting together. It is two movies that had come out within a year of this comic book. The Man Who Fell to Earth. David Bowie alien movie. Uh-huh. And Death Wish. Charles Bronson. Vigilante. Bad movie. Yes. Very odd double feature. Also, now that I think about it, I have seen both of them. But both probably, like, before the age of 12. Wow. Which seems... Yeah, I'm sure the same is true for me, Not too. good no, parenting. No, Wise. No. <laughs> what I do think is maybe interesting, though, is we see that the very end of the comic book, where we meet the, char the lunatic, or Bill's that lunatic is coming, is there's a guy walking down the street eating a candy bar. He throws the candy bar wrapper on the ground. I thought it was a popsicle. Let me check, because that does change the context. Well. Yes, okay. You're right. It's good to be precise about these things. He is eating a popsicle. important. <laughs> I know. You're right. I'm sorry. Uh, and he throws the wrapper on the ground, and immediately somebody comes out of the alleyway and hits him in the stomach with what looks like to be a giant lead pipe. Mm -hmm. It seems as though they are setting up an opposition. It looks like the, like... The vigilante justice being served right there is a very death wish thing. Mm -hmm. And Val is very much a character who is new to this earth and is learning our strange ways here. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a man who fell to earth type situation. I wonder if it is setting up a parallel, with a parallel the there. Except it kind of seems that way. It Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I had a similar thought, except that the motivator behind... The vigilante is, he really hates litter. Right. Well, we don't know what litter did to his family. Whoa. <laughs> I felt so bad for the portly gentleman eating the popsicle. I do, too. I mean, yeah, he shouldn't have littered, but damn. That is a harsh penalty. He the pen, the broke punishment does not fit the crime. Most rips. Most broken. of them, yes. The, the way that that panel is drawn, too, like, this whole book had... I mean, they all have a 70s kind of feel to them, but especially that little bit talking about the movies and then the way that that was drawn almost reminded me of, like, uh, R. Crumb's artwork, sort of. There is definitely a more cartoonish aspect to some of the characters that we are starting to see in this, and I think that's Keith Giffen's influence. We saw before he was going for kind of a Kirby pastiche mm -hmm. and definitely more stylized characters in that way. In this, specifically the character Ledge is drawn as having a cartoonishly long face yeah like a weird lyle lovett stretched out face yeah or mac tonight the uh the moon who was the mcdonald's mascot for a second who 
Are you songs on a piano. This, making it up. I'm sure this happened. This comes up a lot. Mac tonight? No, things that you're sure that happened. I, what what ones have I been wrong about? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember the other things. I'm I, I am pretty certain that Mac tonight was a thing. Yeah, it was a giant. Is it short guy. for macaroni? No, I think it was short for McDonald's. I believe. Oh, uh, of Mac the knife, but the phrase Mac tonight. It was when they were like, okay, so they've got the cartoon, they've got the clown for the kids who want to eat at McDonald's, but this is McDonald's after dark. Am I mixing uh, my musicals up, or was Mac the Knife the guy that was eating, eating, making food out of people? He wasn't making food out of people. It was a murderer from uh, Bertolt Brecht's Three Penny Opera, hmm. uh, Mackie Mercer. He wasn't eating people. I don't think he was eating people. I don't think there was this. Are you thinking Sweeney Todd? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Different. Yeah. Different guy. Different guy. Different McDonald's mascot. Um, okay. We all remember the murderous barber that uh, McDonald's had. He would come out, slice off Grimace's hand. From, oh, not a Grimace. Make it into a meat pie. Oh. I think Grimace was my favorite of the That character is guys. fucking inexplicable. He was my favorite too. But like, what was he even supposed to represent? And also, I think he maybe started off as a bad guy in McDonald's land. Because why else would he have the name Grimace? The opposite of a smile. It seems like he should have been like the dark reflection of Ronald McDonald. Oh no, I always thought it was ironic. Like a, like a big guy being named Tiny. Oh, maybe that's it. Because he's just a purple fuzzy thing. Yeah. Nothing's happier Did than he a like big... shakes? Was that his thing? Oh, I can't remember. Does he even have a mouth? I think he did not have a mouth, and yet he must scream. One other little thing I wanted to bring up. Mm. Uh, one scene when they are in the hallway when Val is trying to register for classes. We hear a snippet of overheard dialogue that is someone saying, Is your name really Stan Mac? Mm-hmm. I thought that was really clever. Stan Mack was a cartoonist for The New Yorker who illustrated overheard snippets of dialogue. Oh, that is clever. So, yeah, kind of a fun Ouroboros there going mm. on. I was wondering about that. It seemed oddly specific. It did, too. That was what caught my eye. I had to look it up. But, mm. yeah, he, uh, he did a strip called Real Life Funnies that ran in the late 70s in New Yorker magazine. And I think The Village Voice. And, yeah, he would illustrate overheard snippets of dialogue. So then having... That be an overheard snippet of dialogue in this comic book, I thought was pretty fun. Hmm. Interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? Yeah, there was just one other thing too, which I appreciated, and it was towards the end where Val is lamenting the process of applying for her classes and how horrible it is, and she's listing off shitty things that she's had to deal with, and demons are one uh-huh. uh rampaging hulk is another sure and in good company is jack norris <laughs> so that college administration process is wow i mean i'm sure she's being hyperbolic there i don't think it's as bad as dealing with jack norris no no but i, I did appreciate that he really made a, a shit list she has faced everything from demons to the Hulk to the man who is still married to the flesh she now inhabits mm. and she has handled them all with calm. Oh, so I guess it's not necessarily her, but the editorial voice. Yeah. Also recognizing that Jack Norris is a piece of shit. Yep. And to paraphrase J. Jonah Jameson, a threat and a menace. A threat and a menace. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You ready to get into the minutiae? Sure. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. 
Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Man, there were some good ones in here. Two of them, I don't think onomatopoeia is the right word. It's like when something that's happening in the scene is reflected directly in the word choice of the sound effect. There's two instances of Hmm. that. All right, what you got? One is when the ringer kicks and I think breaks Kyle's hand. And the noise that that makes is kaboot. (laughs) I like that too. Boot to the hand. Yeah, yeah. Pretty good. And then the other one like that is at the end on page 31, where our litterating vigilante has struck the popsicle-eating guy. And yeah. as the popsicle-eating guy is walking down the street, there's this munch, munch, munch. It's like, got, I don't know, something crunchy on the outside. He's crunching and munching on it. Oh, is he just biting into a popsicle? Yep. Ugh. I know. That it's, gives my teeth you. the heebie-jeebies. Yep, it's a... Uh, hard on the teeth mm. but as he gets hit with the bar the noise that it makes is munch mm-hmm. and I like it starts with the munch which follows up on the munches from the previous scene sure. the uh, the popsicle thing i liked that too i also had two of them one of them is when the ringer is leaping through the window oh that was my um, backup it makes the noise splin clash mm-hmm. splin clash and I think the clash spelled with the K like that makes it sound very much more like a glass breaking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely more of a hard K sound. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I had is also from the ringer fighting Nighthawk. Nighthawk is getting thrown around in like a centrifugal force type thing. And it is kind of what you were talking about, where the noise is a reflection of what is visually indicated. Because the noise that it makes is whooplash! Mm. And it's like he's getting whiplash. Mm-hmm. But it also kind of makes the noise whiplash. Yeah. But I thought that was really fun. Overall, there are some really fun sound effects in this. Yep, I agree. What do you want to do next? Let's speak sartorially. Okay, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were noteworthy? Well, I had um, Dollar Bill, I had his buddy Ledge, and then also the poor Popsicle Man. Oh, yeah. But Ledge's shirt, especially, is, it's like looking at a lava lamp or something. It's it's very psychedelic. Yeah, it is a very psychedelic button-down shirt with uh, some nice wide lapels. and uh, He's got a huge belt. The shirt's coming untucked in the back. Mm -hmm. It's a really specific fashion choices are being made. And Dollar Bill... It's got to be a direct reference to something. It is a wizard hat with two feet poking out of the bottom the bottom of it. That's and he is wearing familiar. a leather vest over it. But that is on what is clearly a sweatshirt. Hey there, listeners. Future Hub here. I did a little bit of research and I was able to figure out that the character appearing on Dollar Bill's sweatshirt is called Cheech Wizard, a character which appeared in a number of underground comics and also in the pages of National Lampoon magazine. We now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. And then he is wearing mirrored sunglasses. These choices tell you a lot about these characters. It, it kind of informs who are they, they are supposed to be. And I think was why I was inclined to try to like them to the extent that I was. Although, as you said, the dialogue makes that difficult. Mm-hmm. The other fashion that I wanted to bring up, we talked about the ringer and his odd choice of uh, making his head the nucleus of an atom in his outfit. But the other thing that I wanted to bring up was Jack Norris is wearing an extreme turtleneck. It is serious. It is a a turtleneck sweater and with some tan pants. And uh, 
it's, I hate to say, it's a pretty good look. It kind of reminds me of something that you might see being worn. It's not quite blousy enough, but it is turtlenecky enough. Maybe if there was like a large floppy overcoat over it, it could be worn in the Highlander TV show. Mm. Yeah, I thought of eight, like 80s Hagar or oh, Van yeah. Heusen, like catalogs yeah like yeah. or just sears, sears catalogs or yeah yeah i can see that and too. he's got the floppy kind of feathered hair too it just he looks very much like 70s like a uh, clothing model man yeah. it's a pretty good look for him i gotta say yeah in this issue as every issue of a defender's comic there is one character who has to act in a manner contrary to their previously established motivation or characterization in a way that furthers the plot to paraphrase the fat boys from the film Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? It's not a very tight choice, but or a very good choice, but I had Kyle because A, he actually listens and for a moment takes to heart some of the arguments that, that the ringer is making. He and briefly internalizes criticism against him. Yeah, he does, yeah. which I thought was very surprising. That coupled with the fact that after it's all over, he does have that other brief moment of self-reflection comparing uh, himself in some ways to Scorpio and, mm -hmm. and having these concerns that, well, shit, maybe I'm all just hot air. Yeah, maybe and... my life is meaningless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was like, whoa, that's a pretty deep thought. Yeah, it kind of is, although self-reflection can go in hand with uh, self-absorption, which I think is very much in Kyle's wheelhouse. So I didn't think it was actually that out of character for him, especially because he doesn't seem to have really learned anything. And that's the part why I said it was a little bit of a, a weak choice, because yeah. at the end, he immediately brings everything back to, oh, you're just jealous. Yeah. I'm going to kick your butt. Right. I decided to go with Nick Fury. I mean, we talked about maybe what some of the motivation and that he was kind of shook by uh, seeing his brother dead and uh, hiring Norris as an example of what not to do. for the And other, yeah, maybe he was guys. hiring Norris as an as an example of what not to do. But initially, at least it was just really like, wait, why the fuck is this guy offering Jack Norris a job? I don't seem to remember Nick Fury being previously written as the dumbest man in the universe. But nor someone who suffers fools, really. Yeah. And it definitely seems like he's doing that after the guy's like, hey, there's your dead brother right there, asshole. Yeah, why aren't you sad? Oh. What? I, I want to police your emotions, not just Val's. I was so angry. You're sad. You love me. <laughs> <laughs> Hulk, you're probably gassy, I guess. Fucking yeah. Jack Norris. But yeah, so I, I went with Nick Fury as my sucka because he's usually such a no-nonsense guy and inviting an all-nonsense character to join your team seems like a bit of a stretch indeed in this issue as every issue there is a best defender and a worst offender in this issue who was the best defender for going way outside of her comfort zone for trying something new and for shaking her fist at Kyle, I had Val. I think that is a very strong choice. I had Valkyrie as my backup choice. Mm. I also had the Hulk as my backup choice. He was pretty great. He brief, was fun. Brief, but great. Yeah, he was annoyed with Nighthawk, ate some hot dogs. Pretty solid. Yep. But I ultimately decided to go with Moon Knight because he saved his life by shotgunning a beer. And then also, 
As a side note, grabbed a can of Schlitz for the road as he was leaving Scorpio's hideout. Perhaps with plans to add a can of beer to his utility belt for further adventures. Then jumps on his chopper and flies off, man. Yeah, I mean, you never know when you're going to need to save your life by shotgunning a beer. That was ingenious. I really, really enjoyed that. It also seemed like kind of nonsense. Also, I'm not entirely sure at what point Nighthawk got filled in on Moon Knight having escaped from that death trap, because he had no way of knowing that. The last issue was their first interaction, Mm -hmm. and that was during a pitched battle. And, yeah, I don't think he had ever previously had knowledge of Moon Knight escaping that death trap. So maybe their very first conversation was just like, Hi, nice to meet you. My name's Kyle Richmond, or Nighthawk. <laughs> yep. And then the reply, I guess, was, Hi, my name's Moon Knight. I just escaped from a death trap. Ask me how. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Nighthawk says, like, I've always been wanting to ask, how did you escape from the death trap? Well, I had a beer. So I shotgunned the beer. And then it filled with air because I drank it so fast. And then I used that air to rebreathe for a minute. And then... I was fine. This is also perhaps the closest we've seen to product placement uh, in a comic because there's a scene before the, when we'll talk about this one in a minute, before they show him drinking the beer or breathing out of it Uh from it, where he's just holding a can of Schlitz like right into (laughs) what would be the camera. It's delightful. Yeah. Yeah. So I had Moon Knight as my favorite for shotgunning a beer, saving his life by shotgunning a beer, and then taking a beer for the road. Yep. Good job, Moon Knight. Indeed. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? Where's my wife? Yeah, good choice. Sick of it. I am super sick of it. I I guess there wasn't any superheroing done in this. Um, whether he's a defender or not, that always is a nebulous thing. That's why I didn't decide to go with him, but I think it's a perfectly valid choice. And yeah, I am so sick of his shit. He is so terrible. Back up Nick Fury for giving him a job. But that was before we had thought through the right. possibilities of why. Right. I decided to go with Kyle for not checking whether his friend was still employed at the college or still alive before sending Val out into this fucking meat grinder of a college application process. Mm-hmm. Yep. And really, I think probably for him, he was just like, it was super easy for me to get into college. Yeah, because your dad bought your way into the college, as was established in previous episodes. Yep. So I had Kyle for that, for his sophomoric response to the ringer's fairly well thought out arguments, uh, and for uh, emulating cartoon birds who we have established are assholes. Yeah, all valid. Yeah, bad job, Nighthawk. Mm-hmm. Corey, what was your favorite panel? Oh boy, there was some good ones to choose from. There were some excellent ones to choose from. I definitely had one. That was my absolute favorite. Why don't you go first? What was your absolute favorite? Well, I liked this panel enough that I made up a little song to go along with it. He's Moon Knight the Lunar Man. He lives in a Schlitz can. He sucks out all the air and escapes Scorpio's lair. He's Moon Knight the Lunar Man. Hey. Toot toot. Pretty good. Page six. Page six. It is a shot of Moon Knight recounting how he escaped from the death trap and it is a panel of flashback where the panel is shaped like a can of schlitz and you see the image inside it of moon knight remembering himself drowning in what looks like a can of schlitz and uh shotgunning the beer inside the can of schlitz it's just a really cool 
interestingly designed panel, and I liked it a lot. I had that one too. I didn't make up a song, but that was at the top of the list for me. Mm -hmm. I had a runner-up on the same page at the top that is a series of panels that are made up on opposing sides, or made up of uh, smoke from Nick Fury's cigar Mm -hmm. on opposing sides. Which is, which is a cool touch. It is cool. And it's we will often see that flashback panels will have wavy lines rather than straight lines uh, mm-hmm. to define the panel borders. And in this, that is explained in story as the panel being made of Nick Fury's cigar smoke. And damn, that is really, really cleverly done and nicely laid out. Yep. Good call. Likewise. What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you enjoy most in this issue, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? Yeah, there was some pretty good stuff uh, in the issue. I settled on... We talked about it already, but it's the part where Val's in the coffee shop afterwards, Mm -hmm. and she's kind of just trying to unwind from this shitty experience from the the horrors of administrivia. Is that a word? Yeah, administrivia. Yeah. Yeah. The Valkyrie is trembling. She sits in the coffee bean barn on campus at Empire State University, and she does not question the rising price of the liquid inside her mug. She has faced everything, from demons, to the Hulk, to the man who is still married to the flesh she now inhabits, and she has handled them all with calm. But the registration process has destroyed her calm, and so now she trembles. (laughs) I was like, aww. I had words that expressed a similar sentiment. We had discussed earlier how much I enjoy having fantastic characters deal with mundane situations. And I think that is epitomized by Valkyrie thinking to herself, By the Elder North Gods! Not getting into this class means changing two of my other classes! Yeah, Yeah, I, I love that panel too. I really, really enjoyed that. And those were my favorite words. Very good. I really thought they were like a pie. Only one that was not made out of steel. Oh, that sounds delicious. Doesn't it? Mm. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, the Hulk went zen. Straight Buddhist. Oh, yeah? In this one. Well, except for the eating meat part. So there's a, and I'm paraphrasing, but the parable of, um, you know, a couple of Zen guys like having a conversation and one of them's like, oh yeah, like uh, my master's so cool that he can like make words appear on a paper, can, you know, do all these magical feats. And the other Zen guy who in this story is the one that we're supposed to root for is like, oh, mine sleeps when he's sleepy and eats when he's hungry. So it's like that, you know, eat when hungry, Uh. sleep when sleepy sort of zen stuff nice but the hulk just embodies that right he's walking down the street and he sees a cart of dirty water hot dogs and just reaches right in it's like i'm fucking hungry man he does is it cool if i eat these (laughs) (laughs) well specifically he asks if it's cool if he eats them after he is eating them and that was what i appreciated and that was what i thought his takeaway lesson was he uh is reaching in grabbing the hot dogs out of the cart and says hulk is hungry Man is not mad at Hulk for eating his food, is man? And the guy who is clearly cowering behind his hot dog stand says, "Uh, Mad? Me? Never. I had the takeaway lesson from that being, sometimes it is better to ask forgiveness than permission. Although he's not really asking for forgiveness. Uh, He is just like going ahead and doing what he's wanting to do and saying, you know what, I'll deal with the consequences later. 
it is easier to demand forgiveness than to ask permission. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and that's the hoax rules. Corey, I have one further question hmm. that must be addressed. What Wong doings is Wong doing? Yeah, in month of our Lord, September, September. year of our Lord, 1977. Mm-hmm. Turns out there's a right way and a Wong way to conduct international trade. Oh. And Jimmy Carter, president at the time, finally starts to make good on something that, that the U.S. has been a real jerk about mm-hmm. over the past many years, which is which is the Panama Canal. And Wong actually turns out from his interest in agriculture, knows Jimmy Carter back from the peanut farming days. Oh. Yeah. And was like, hey, man, you should really do something about this. I was down there on vacation, and you've gotten enough out of the canal to basically make back your initial investment on all the work and manpower that you put into it. And Wong, just in general, not a huge fan of colonialism and, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So he's doing his, his bit to tip the scales in the right way. So yeah, he has a conversation with Carter. Carter signs the paper, says in 20 years, Panama is going to get it back. Um, You know, awesome. Good yeah. job. Good outcome. But that's it doesn't quite end there. Oh. So also as, as part of his, his travels in talking to Carter, uh, it turns out just randomly where they were, there was a young David Lee Roth there. Oh. Also, they had uh, traveled through uh, Indiana, where, uh-huh. where he's from. So he's in his, like, early 20s at this point, and, you know, is getting his his feet wet with the whole rock star thing, but also is, like, really fired up by Wong's passion mm-hmm. and decides, oh, man, I gotta, I gotta somehow help if I can. It took him 10 years right, to get the words down, and most people think it well, is just... seven years. Yeah, 80... 84. 84, 84, same as the album. Okay, yeah, that's when it, Yeah. <laughs> You finished writing in 83, and then uh, Panama right, right, came right. out so in 84. So six years. Yeah. And though, you know, commonly mistaken for just a shitty metaphor about, you know, cars as sex or whatever. It's really... I was not familiar with that metaphor. <laughs> I don't know. That's how I always read it. It seems like he's talking about a car, but he's talking about a lady, too. I didn't too even know he was talking everything. about a car. I really only, like... Just the I just Panama. think... Panama. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty catchy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, no, it turns out the song is about the, the power of international trade and the, you know, today, what, $270 billion worth of commerce that, mm. that flow through the canal on an annual basis. And uh, so influencing not only presidential decisions, um, the trade rights of our neighbors to the south and early Van Halen or middle Van Halen. Mid Van Halen. Peak Van Halen. Peak, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-Sagar. Pre-Sagar? Pre-Sammy Hagar. Yes. Sagar, pre- for short. Sure. That's uh, That was some of the Wong doings righted by Wong. Very nice. Very nice. It's interesting that you should bring up Jimmy Carter, because he does tie into the other doings that Wong was doing. Mm. You see, Wong wasn't spending as much time with the Defenders as he used to, but he still cared about them as an organization a great deal. And, uh, man, he could not get it out of his head. What a dumb jerk Kyle was. And he really thought that the Defenders would be a lot better off if Kyle was not part of their team. So, a bit of news struck him. Jimmy McCullough had quit the band Wings. And he thought to himself, you know what? What? <laughs> Wing. They have that song, Jet. Got Wings. Got jetpacks. Maybe if Kyle could get in the band Wings and start touring with Paul McCartney, then that would keep him occupied and he could stop being part of the Defenders and they could really start getting some shit done. 
So he tried to negotiate directly with Wings and just couldn't get in the door. But as you mentioned, he had previously had a friendship with Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. And he had... Uh, had that reacquainted briefly because uh, through his friendship with Nick Fury and the Thing, they had just saved President Carter's life, as is referenced earlier in this issue, right, right. from an assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. So he called in some favors with Jimmy Carter, and he said, Jimmy, can you sit down with the record companies and see if you can cut some kind of a deal that will get Kyle Richmond into the band Wings. And so that is why, on September 15th of 1977, Jimmy Carter sat down with 15 different record labels and had a meeting. And he tried his best. But even Jimmy Carter could not make Kyle into a wanted commodity. And so, Kyle is still with the Defenders and did not, in fact, start touring with the band Wings, replacing Jimmy McCullough, who had quit the band earlier that month what a shame it really is <laughs> <laughs> wow and that was the wrong doings that Wong was doing nice. in the year of our lord 1977 and the month of our lord september good job Wong. nice effort yeah he tried his best speaking of trying our best we tried our best to make a show that was listenable you tell us how we did if we did a good job if we didn't you know keep that to yourself man if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, really pretty much whatever you're using as a podcatcher. Heck, you're listening to it right now on some kind of a podcatcher, so just keep on doing what you're doing. And maybe go into that application you are using and leave us a review. A good review. Tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell someone. Tell your great-grandfather. And then explain to them what a podcast is. That'll be fun. They'll probably try to call it a blog. I've noticed that pretty <laughs> much everybody that I talk to over a certain age asks how my blog is going. Oh. Well, everybody's got to have one. It's true. It's mandatory. Mm-hmm. Blogs are like assholes. Everybody's got one. And they all stink. Mm. You were saying? <laughs> I don't remember. We were, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram oh. and all the places up on the internets. Uh, if you can't find us any of those places, then uh, maybe look inward into your heart. There we are. We also received a, uh, a, a fun present. Luke Nino sent us a Nighthawk action figure. Mm-hmm. So now if they got that, we can look at it and imagine him saying dumb shit that a cartoon bird would say. That's what I'm doing right now. So that's a good time, and thank, thanks for the lovely present. I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it yet, but uh, apparently Luke has a podcast called Snark Nights Podcast, where they review comic book movies. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to giving that a listen to. Likewise. Maybe you'll enjoy giving it a listen to. Who can say? Probably. Fair. And, as I mentioned earlier in the, uh, in the podcast, if you would like to hear our thoughts on a comic book movie, Howard Deduck, that is, you can find that along with hours and hours of other podcasts that are exclusive content for our Patreon donors if you donate to us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. In addition to the Howard the Duck the Movie podcast, Lisa and I host a monthly show about Howard the Duck comic books uh, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And there's also a bunch of other stuff that is up there. Uh, 
I put up some videos of me reviewing classic comic books, and Corey and I and our friend Lee talked about Turbo Teen and Auto Man for mm. a long time. Somehow. We also uh, talked about one of the new Teen Titans drug awareness prevention comic books. I guess they're not trying to prevent drug awareness. Drug But awareness they're trying to prevent you from altering your awareness with drugs. Yep. Anyway, if you want to listen to that stuff, uh, you should, uh, you know, give us uh, give us some money. Even if you don't want to listen to that stuff, you could still give us some money. I mean, then we'd have the money, and that'd be nice. Mm -hmm. So if you are donating, then thank you so much for doing so. And regardless of whether you are donating, thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you later. Have a nice time, everybody. All the time. I'll say, I'll say... <laughs> <laughs> I'll say something that's a joke. A joke. It's a joke, see? Yeah, and it wasn't a joke. Just like what Nighthawk was saying wasn't a joke. Uh, Damn lying birds. Uh, Don't trust them. Birds. Don't trust a bird. Ever. Bye. And they knew it.